welcome to another episode of Chris Reed's Book. And welcome back to this week's episode of Chris Reed's Book. Once again, I am Chris Pullman. This is my podcast where I read to you different chapters or sources in this case from my first novel, Mystery and Deceit from Earth to Mars. Uh, right now we are reading through the appendix material of that first book. If this is your first podcast or your first episode of Chris Reed's book, I would highly suggest that you go and listen to the podcast from the first episode because it is a serial podcast. I read chapters out of my first novel in order. So right now we're in the appendix material. It won't hurt you to hear this ahead of time. Uh, it just gives a little bit of background on the world, the universe, as it stands in the book, but it doesn't actually affect, per se, a lot that we hear about in the book. But it does inform that universe, and it does inform what comes next, because I have written a sequel to this novel that I'm currently in the process of editing. So in this, the 26th episode of Chris Reed's book, uh, we'll be reading, or continuing to read the appendix material. Uh, let's just jump right into it. This is part of the Dissension Collection in Appendix C of Mystery and Deceit from Earth to Mars. This article, or this is, uh, it's not an article, this is uh, an interview called From the Front Lines. October 26th, 2046. This is Julia Leist, reporting from the American side of the U.S.-Mexico border. I'm here today to interview members of the, one of the TDF conventional platoons that are poised along the border, ready for a chaos assault. Though no move for the border has yet been made, it is clear from simply looking across the border that chaos is massing troops for that purpose. Here with me now are members of Andy Stiles' squad from the 2nd Platoon Fox Company, 1st Battalion, 12th TDF. Good morning to you all. A group of seven troopers, as well as Sergeant Stiles, greets Julia. First of all, let me ask you what you think of operating in a combat team of mixed gender. Traditionally, combat teams from front-line units have been all male. Everyone chuckles a bit, looking about to see who's going to answer. After a second, Julia prompts, How about you, Corporal Brewer? Well, ma'am, it's uh, definitely something to get used to, he says with a grin, but to be honest, I would say it's probably not a lot different. Uh, everybody's held to the same performance standards these days, 100% of what you're physically capable of. Uh, going through basic, we are all held to the same level of expectations, and at every time the ladies came through, the ones up here on the line more than likely beat out other guys to get here. The TDF has high but fair expectations. What about in combat? Julia asks. Well, ma'am, Sergeant Stiles says, honestly, we haven't seen any yet. In training with these folks, though, I can assure you, uh, they all performed as a cohesive unit during live fire exercises as well as in war games. They're up to the challenge. I'm sure our listeners will be glad to hear that. Julia says with a smile. Where are all of you from? I'm curious how that plays into the dynamics of your squad. Well, ma'am, I'm from right here in Texas. 
Styles says, Dallas, born and raised. Brewer, you next. And just snake around and down, the sergeant adds, turning on his stool and gesturing. Well, ma'am, uh, I'm from Phoenix, Arizona, Corporal Brewer says. A little bit damper here than I'm used to, but that's all right, he says, giving Styles a nudge. I'm from New Mexico myself, ma'am, says Private Morales. Little Rock, Arkansas, says Private Jasper Davy. Compton, Illinois, says Corporal Ann Bryant. New York, New York, says Private Hazel Lee. Albany, New York, says Private Millie Alvarez. Hubbard, Ohio, says Private Nancy Swenson. Quite a diverse group you have here, Sergeant, Julia says. Yes, ma'am. All bunch of misfits, but a good bunch, Styles replies. We're still waiting to see how our lieutenant fits into this group of Yanks. He's from the UK. Diverse indeed. Tell me, how long ago were you deployed here? The group looks around at each other before Styles responds. Well, ma'am, let's just say we've been here long enough to put tent stakes in the ground and get comfortable. I'll unpack a bit. I understand. How about what made all of you join up? The TDF's conventional forces are, after all, completely voluntary, Julia says. That's very true, ma'am, and we're proud of it. Each of us wants to be here to do our part. We all went through the same fire, were tested by it, and have proven we're good and tough enough for the task. Personally, I was in the U.S. Army before the TDF took over. Uh, after being discharged and working back home for a spell, I figured out that it was time to serve again, so I joined up with the TDF, Sergeant Stiles says. Sergeancy exception here as far as that goes, though, ma'am, Corporal Brewer states. The rest of us never served before. A few of us, like Lee and Alvarez, were in college when the TDF started this recruitment campaign. The rest of us joined up fresh out of high school. I think I can speak for everyone here, though, when I say that we did it because we understand the sort of threat that Chaos's plan for this world poses. It all sounds great on paper, but ruled by military dictatorship? That failed come the Arab Spring, as well, as well as the Coalition War. Not to mention that wholesale executing a country's government doesn't bode well for what chaos would do to any opposition. There were nods of agreement throughout the crowd. That's interesting how you say it. What is your opinion of the Terran government and the job it's doing? Julia asks. Small guffaws sound around the crowd before Corporal Bryant responds. Ma'am, we're still friends here and like to stay that way. To be honest, though, we do understand where each other stand on opinions of the government, as some of us are more centrist, think that they're right where they should be. Uh, some are more right or left, think they're doing too much or too little with regards to this or that. Overall, though, we do all agree that if the government needs change, it should come democratically, not by military coup, as chaos is espousing. Again, there were nods all around. That's interesting. So you've learned to respect each other's viewpoints, Julia asks the group. I think so, ma'am, replies Corporal Brewer. After all, no point in making enemies with the person who has your back, I suppose, he continues looking around at his comrades. That being in this situation, literally looking down at the enemy, has made things like politics a little less important. More like part of who we are, rather than defining who we are. I mean, I'm not about to hate on Millie here just because she's a ginger. Hey! Private Alvarez exclaims, suddenly trying to maneuver around Private Davy to hit Tommy. I can see your point, Julia says as Alvarez finally lands her punch. It's a pretty mature attitude for so young a group.
Sergeant Stiles, you said that you're the oldest of the group? Yes, ma'am. 28 earlier this month, he replies. How do you think the age of this squad will affect how well it does in combat? Julia asks. Well, ma'am, I can't speak from experience, of course, but I believe they'll do just fine. You see, when your mind switches over into combat mode, all you've got is your experience and your training. And training's there for a reason. It's meant to imbue the person with the best response for any given combat situation. All experience does is sharpen that. And they all had the training and did well. I've no doubts that they'll do fine. Even considering how young we all are. <laughs> Styles replies. One thing, even in chatting with all of you before we went on camera, one thing I hadn't heard yet was a gung-ho attitude. In previous wars, there's typically been a sense of let's get over there and finish them off quick, a, a sort of home-by-Christmas mentality. Has that just not come out of this group yet, or is it wholly absent? Julia asked. There were chuckles from around the whole group. Oh, ma'am, to be completely honest, begins Private Morales, it's not that it's absent. Uh, we still think we're the tops. <laughs> it's just that our shall I say, useful exuberance for this has been tempered. Part of training for us was experiencing just what the elites can do. They demonstrated on us just what they were capable of. It wasn't meant to hurt us, and they never did. But they did scare the hell out of us. It damps down the whole home by Christmas mentality pretty quick. We know we can win, but we also know from those experiences what it, that it's going to be a long haul. Well, I certainly appreciate your candor about it, Private. And thank you all for your time. It's been a pleasure, and I just want to say, for myself, all of us at the network, and on behalf of our viewers back home, good luck, stay safe, and keep your heads down, Julia adds. Thank you, ma'am, all members of the squad say in one form or another. The picture changes to show Julia getting up and shaking each trooper's hand. Julia's voice begins a voiceover. Sadly, before even filing this report, Privates Davy and Swenson would be dead. The day following my interview with Sergeant Stiles' squad is when Chaos's forces attacked en masse across the U.S.-Mexico border. The portion of the line guarded by 1st Battalion of the 12th TDF, of which Stiles' squad is part, held during the battle. Casualties and fatalities, however, were still reported. This is Julia Leist for CDS News. Evening News, 23 October, 2045. Tonight, on the Evening News, the global war, how it is affecting civilian morale. Worldwide food shortages are once again affecting large portions across the globe. Midterm elections, what the politicians of both sides are hoping to gain. And also, my exclusive interview with co-leader of the Terran Defense Force, James Christopher. All that ahead, on the Evening News. Excerpt, Interview with James Christopher Once again, welcome back to the Evening News. Joining me now in studio is James Christopher, co-leader of the Terran Defense Force, the TDF. It's a pleasure to have you on the show, Commander. The static shot on Scott widens to include James Christopher, seated across the news desk from Scott. Scott, pleasure to be here, and please call me James. Thank you, James. If I may, can we start with your impression of how the war is going? Scott asks. Well, Scott, James says, clasping his hands, it's tough right now. Chaos, as you know, managed to build up substantial forces without being noticed. Currently, the TDF outnumbers Chaos's forces roughly three to one. 
These numbers specifically reference the number of elite troops both sides command. So they all have the ablative armor your kind possess, Scott says. That's right. Currently, battles are much more of a holding game than anything else. You see, neither side is willing to commit large numbers of elite troops to break the other's line. It would leave that side at a substantial disadvantage in the next engagement, James replies. So then, what is being done to break the stalemate? Scott asks. As you know, the Terran defense or the Terran government is continuing to send diplomatic envoys to Chaos in the hopes he will listen to reason. So far, all attempts have failed, though he has at least stopped killing the envoys, James replies. We have heard many reports over the last few months of the brutality of Chaos's forces, how he takes no prisoners, Scott comments. That is very true, Scott. After his coup in Colombia, he completely eliminated all Colombian military forces, both federales and independientes. Even when some tried to surrender, he ordered them killed. His stated stance is either you're with us or deserve death. It is a scorched earth approach to warfare, James replies. And yet he hasn't attempted to break through your lines? Scott asks. No, not yet. We suspect that, seeing the loggerheads we're at, that he is training large numbers of semi-conventional forces for use, James says. The camera, now on Scott, he says... Would even semi-conventional forces be of any use against TDF elites? Honestly, Scott, in sufficient numbers, they may, James says with an exasperated shrug. By saying that, are you giving intelligence to Chaos's forces? Scott asks. Not at all, Scott. First of all, he's known that we know of his conventional force buildup for some time. Second, he wouldn't be training them if they wouldn't be effective, James replies. So basically, what I'm hearing so far is that there really isn't much movement. Both sides are holding their own, Scott says. That's correct, James replies. Now that we've properly adjusted where our forces are deployed, we're more than an even match for chaos globally. Further, we will continue to be so, as he simply can't shift his forces quick enough to outmaneuver us. What about his threatened use of nuclear weapons? Scott asks. Well, we take the threat seriously, Scott. We do not believe he is willing to step over that line just yet, James replies. We believe that he will, more likely, try assaults with his conventional forces once they are of sufficient number before resorting to nukes. Hopefully your instincts are correct on that. I'm sure our viewers are also curious about your opinion on what appears to be an early propaganda campaign emanating from Chaos's camp, Scott adds. We have, James said, been analyzing the various disinformation messages Chaos has been broadcasting, our best communication experts believe this campaign will, first of all, be approximately 7.4% effective. More importantly, though, we believe them to be only the first volley in a constantly increasing propaganda attack on Chaos's part. Though we'll, through it, we believe that he hopes to essentially flip blame for this war onto the government and away from him. If he can do so, it may be enough of itself to help him gain a foothold beyond our current lines. As do yours, though, Scott adds, referring to the propaganda efforts of the TDF. There is truth to that, assented James. Even so, as you can imagine, it's a difficult time right now. People are still very cognizant of the cost of the coalition war and aren't eager to relive that. I can't blame them. Along those lines, I wish I could guarantee a quick end to this war. However, 
as it is currently the government's position to maintain our front lines as they continue to attempt a peace through diplomatic channels. The ball is in Chaos's court. If I may say so, James, it doesn't sound as though you're in complete agreement with the government's decision, Scott says on camera, leaning forward slightly on his desk. The government commands the TDF, and the TDF supports and follows. All orders of the government, James replies. I do not mean to be terse, Mr. Gellert. It is simply that, in this time, the TDF and the government must stand together, as both of us are under assault. The ironic part of the assault, of course, is that the government, realistically, is the one under physical attack at the moment, while we are under an ideological attack, being forced to stand opposite those who are essentially, sometimes literally, brothers and sisters. No apology necessary, James. I know that it was not my intention to, Scott says. Of course it wasn't, Scott. I understand that. James suddenly straightens in his seat. Scott, I hate to have to do this to you, especially now, but I'm going to have to cut this interview short. Something happened? Scott asks. Apparently, Chaos has decided the time is right to change tactics. He has launched a massive attack along the U.S.-Mexican border and has broken through, James says. I thought you said that he hadn't the personnel to do that, Scott asks, shock edging his voice. Apparently, his semi-conventional forces have been underestimated. Uh, it was a pleasure being on the show, Scott. I must be off, James says as he rises. An aide rushes on camera and hands him a tablet as they bo both walk off set. The camera switches back to Scott as he says, uh, Thank you. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, that was James Christopher, co-leader of the TDF. We will bring you updates on the apparent chaos attack along the U.S.-Mexican border as details become available. Uh, we, we'll be back right after this short break. Darkest Hour 3 May, 2046. Ladies and gentlemen, good evening. This is Scott Gellert reporting from the outskirts of Chicago, Illinois. No more than two miles directly behind me is the front line of this most current world war. South of the line is territory held by chaos and his forces. North of the line, forces of the TDF are digging in their heels desperately, trying to maintain control over the physical and spiritual heart of the TDF, Atmos homeland of Wisconsin. Over the last few hours, the sounds of battle have been growing louder and more raucous. As you, our viewers, know, Chaos's northerly thrust put the TDF off balance, a fact affirmed on this program one week ago. Joining me from one of our embedded cameras is Eric Pullman. So, Eric, Scott says to the man taking up half the screen, this advance wasn't anticipated? Not at all, Scott. Eric replies, Chaos had been advancing his front uniformly until today. Since this morning, though, it has been clear that he has undertaken a purposeful and deliberate push northward along the eastern side of the Mississippi River. Do you have any idea why he would be doing this? Scott asks. Is it an attempt to cut the United States in half and, in doing so, cut off some of your forces from supply? In any other war, Involving any other army, you might be right, Scott. But here, with the direction he is pushing, he can only come to one conclusion. He is aiming for Wisconsin. All of us were stationed there during the project, Eric said offhandedly, suddenly cutting himself off. Rather, that is where Atmos started. It is our figurative heart. 
he now aims for. He hopes to take it and, in so doing, break our will. The picture switches back to Scott in the field, the suburban skyline of Chicago, now occasionally lighting up from weapons fire. That campaign, started in Oklahoma and northern Texas, has now reached the southern outskirts of Chicago. Tonight, in a press release, Chaos shared his reasons for marching through rather than around Chicago. The screen changes to a stock photo of Chaos in his own version of the TDF uniform, a chaotically geometric, computerized camouflage of gray, dark shades of brown, and green. His epaulets show a cluster of five stars arranged in a pentagon. Tonight, my forces will march through the city of Chicago. In our wake, we'll be left rubble. No building will be spared. The air superiority of the TDF, broken over the last week by my might, is now powerless to stop us in this rampage. The demands of the TDF and the Terran government hold no sway with us. Who can make demands of the destroying wind? Once more, Scott is center screen. The suburban skyline is now almost constantly alight. The fighting, as you can see behind me, is growing ever the more intense. The very citizenry of Chicago were, by edict of Mayor Daly, called upon to help defend their city. All able-bodied personnel were mobilized into militias. Some are serving as ammunition carriers, some with experience and training as line fighters, and more yet are helping reinforce the Chicago police in maintaining order in their city. The TDF, for its part, has called in every trooper north of the Chicago advance from within a 600-mile radius to this point. In talking briefly a moment ago with Eric Pullman himself, now on the front lines, it is the TDF's hope to blunt this attack here to draw the proverbial line and the literal line in the sand here on the shores of Lake Michigan. We now go to a clip from earlier today. The picture switches to one of Eric Pullman in TDF uniform, three stars on either shoulder, a sheen appearing all over his body. His uniform remains a blocky, squarish, computerized design, contrasting with a seemingly haphazard design of chaos's. We've pulled out all the stops, Eric says to a bouquet of microphones. Every resource we can bring to bear here we have. With any luck, we'll be able to dig in ahead of chaos's forces to give us defilade and some advantage. It's our feeling that if we can stop his advance here, we will have taken the momentum out of his entire North American advance. A picture once again changes to one of Scott, the background now a constant glow. The battle has now become completely engaged. The TDF command and control center here has signaled to us that forces along 100% of their lines have engaged forces of Chaos's army. The thump of mortars and huffle-thumb of artillery can be heard over top of Scott, creating the feeling of an asynchronous percussion symphony. All civilians in the area have been evacuated for their own safety. At last report, some 50,000 TDF and militia troops had been stationed online to engage the estimated 65,000 chaos forces being brought to bear on Chicago. Suddenly, behind Scott, huge streaks of black surrounded by ultraviolet shot skyward, nearly a half dozen all at once. Scott confusedly looks at the camera. The shots had gone skyward soundlessly. He turns, seeing the shots, and says, From the color of those shots, I must assume they are from Chaos's lines. They appear by their trajectories to be anti-aircraft weapons. Scott, please excuse the interruption. 
comes Katie's voice. The screen changes to show a split image, one of each reporter. Yes, Katie, go ahead, Scott says. Scott, we've just received reports from our affiliates in Milwaukee that TDF jets were heard taking off and heading south. That would agree with what I'm seeing here, Katie, Scott says into the camera, turning afterward. As you look at this scene, you can see spotlights being turned on uh, to illuminate the clouds, blotting out the night sky. It's creating a very eerie feel to this battle. Light both going up toward the clouds from weapons fire and bouncing back down from the searchlights. Suddenly, a roar overhead causes Scott to cover his ears as the camera shakes. Nearly two dozen shots fly skyward from the six anti-aircraft turrets. The searchlights are all engulfed in flame, going dark. Katie, I think it's safe to say that the TDF jets have arrived. We were able to hear that roar over the feed, Scott. How low do you think the jets were flying? To be honest, Katie, I'm, I'm not sure. I couldn't see them even with the searchlights in battle glow. I would likewise be hard-pressed to tell you exactly how many there were. The sky once again takes on an otherworldly glow as it is lit in ultraviolet by the anti-aircraft barriers batteries. Another deafening roar shakes the camera as three of the AA batteries are engulfed in flames. Katie, my feeling right now after that overflight is that this is a wing of at least six jets. The roar of their engines seemed to extend from far off to my right, overhead, and to my left aways. However, I still have not seen the jets, nor even their engines. Could these be new models, Scott? Wisconsin is, after all, home to renowned NAR defense. It's entirely possible, Katie. There seemed to be stealth of a whole new... Scott is again cut off by the roar of engines. The remaining AA batteries manage only two more shots apiece before they become plumes of flame. Scott, another report just arrived here in New York, Katie says, reading a piece of paper handed to her from off-camera. Apparently wings of TDF craft have been reported on approach vectors to Chicago, putting their bases of origin in Minnesota, Ohio, and Michigan. Our best guess is that some 24 fighters in six wings are headed your way. Um, Katie, could you repeat that? Scott manages as a low rumble builds and maintains itself in the background. Scott, it looks like around 24 TDF fighters are headed your way. Behind Scott, lines of fire from three directions streak groundward from the sky. A roar of engines again shakes the camera as a fourth set of inbound fire erupts at the ground from over Scott's head. Katie, I, I think they're here. I'm not sure if these jets are just that quick or if our sources are coming in that slow. But Scott is forced to pause as another roar shakes the camera, engine flares becoming visible, heading south toward and over the lines. From their wings erupt tracer rounds, as well as several colors of energy bolts. Katie, Katie, this is beyond words. I have been in war zones before, but never have... Scott continues, having to yell over the increasing din. Never have I been party to this sort of display of firepower. Scott, can you still hear me? Katie asks. Scott presses his hand against his right ear. Scott, can you tell 
Is artillery still firing in addition to the air fire? After a moment, Scott nods. It's barely audible, but uh, the sounds of mortars, of the mortars and larger artillery are still making their presence known. I can tell you, Katie, that the rooftop under my feet has not stopped shaking since the fighter jets began appearing overhead. Have you any further word from the TDF command center, Scott? Scott again presses his hand hard to his right ear as Katie's question is apparently being replayed. I don't believe we've had any further word, Katie. Though, if those are indeed TDF jets, flying sorties overhead, uh, I think the tide of battle may have turned. The din of battle seems to increase more behind Scott as flights of jets continue to strafe the front lines in pairs. Katie, uh, I'm afraid, Scott says, barely audible over the noise, but I'm not going to be of much of much use out here at the present. I can't even hear our, our producer over my earpiece anymore. That's okay, Scott. We can handle this for the moment. Scott stares at the camera for a moment, shaking his head and shrugging until someone off-camera signals him. Okay. Thank you, Scott says as he steps out of frame. We are going to, says Katie, keep our camera in Chicago, turned on the fighting as best we can. However, for the moment, we will bring the coverage, that is, analysis of the battle over Chicago here, to our world news headquarters in New York. Joining me, from her command post along the eastern seaboard is former U.S. General Amy, Amy Henshaw, now a major general in the TDF. Thank you for joining us tonight, Amy. Good to see you again. The screen now holds three images, one each of Katie and Henshaw on the upper right and left corners of the screen, while a wide screenshot of the battlefield dominates the screen below them. Pleasure to see you again, Katie. Amy... What insights can you give us about the battle our viewers are witnessing? Well, Katie, what I can tell you for sure is that chaos mobilized more forces than we originally anticipated. We believe, at this hour, that our forces at Chicago are now facing some 80,000 enemy troops. That's absolutely incredible. How many of those would you estimate are elite troops? Katie asks. Katie, between the two sides, I would say slightly better, perhaps, by 10 or 20 percent than battalion strength. Maybe 1,500, Amy replies. Would such a number of elite have, or will they, play a decisive role in this battle? Katie asks. With over 100,000 troops in the area along with militia, 1,500 elite troopers simply won't be able to have the sort of impact that would turn this battle Amy replies. What then about the fighter jets? Katie asks. Our strafing sorties are having the desired effect as you could infer from your camera coverage. We did, as you may have guessed, bring in a wing of new advanced jets. For security reasons, I can't go into details about them, Amy comments. Understandable, Katie replies. What effect has the TDF's air power had on this battle? She presses. Katie, the numbers are still coming in, of course, but the reports I've viewed seem to indicate that once our air power entered the battle, 
it stymied Chaos's advance. We went into this night expecting substantial losses, though now believe those numbers will be drastically lower. Suddenly, a building-sized explosion fills the camera shot of the Chicago skyline. <laughs> Amy, if you'll stay with us for just a moment, Katie says, I believe we're going to pick up on audio from Scott. Just a pillar of fire, comes Scott's voice, still hardly audible, even at a yell, over the continuing sounds of battle. <laughs> Our best guess is that it was a building on or near the front lines. We are unable to tell from this distance what exactly caused this, Scott says as he is cut off, as another blinding flash erupts on camera, its sound crackling over the audio stream. Katie, I believe I may be able to shed some light on just what's going on there in Chicago. Amy says, Any insight would be welcome, Katie replies. I believe what is happening, what we're seeing, as Chaos's forces setting off buildings laden with pre-wired explosives. Why would he do that, though, to buildings he controls? Is he making good as best he can on his threat to level Chicago? Katie asks Amy. I don't believe so. Rather, I believe what he's doing is setting them off amidst TDF and militia forces. I just now received a report that Chaos's forces had fallen into retreat. Our field commanders will press the advance, overrunning the positions held by Chaos as his forces abandon them as they retreat. It puts such buildings in a perfect position to do the greatest physical and psychological damage to our forces, Amy continues as three more large explosions light up the Chicago night sky. It's meant to slow our advance and give cover from infantry to Chaos's retreat. It could also be seen as retaliation in response to whatever casualties we inflicted with our renewed air power. Several more explosions rock the camera from Chicago. Scott, Katie says, did you hear all that? I did, Katie, and it would seem to fit with the noise levels we've heard over the last few minutes. The sounds of battle suddenly decreased in intensity after the first explosion. The sound of the jets has likewise been getting fainter very quickly. The Chicago skyline is still being lit up, however, despite the lack of sounds of battle, Scott comments. Unfortunately, Amy says, those are secondary fires set off by the explosions. Katie, based on additional reports, I believe you were correct. Chaos is still making partial payment on his promise. Whole neighborhoods will be on fire before this night is through. Amy finishes as several more explosions go off on the Chicago camera. Amy, says Katie, do you know, seeing what is happening around there, would the TDF forces in Chicago still be pressing their advance? I doubt it at this point, Katie. We wouldn't know how many houses were so rigged. Pushing forward with our ground troops would only invite further casualties. Our airborne forces, though, will press their attack as long as they can. Without a ground army to oppose, Chaos's troopers will no doubt turn their weapons skyward. While our vehicle armor is resilient, ground troops can occasionally fire off a lucky shot. In your estimation, then, Amy, is this battle over? Katie asks. My professional opinion is that we've seen the worst of the fighting. Come daylight, the TDF forces will no doubt encounter more pockets of resistance as they carefully advance. 
In daylight, we'll be able to better assess and identify which buildings in our path were rigged to blow. Very well. We will let you go then, Amy. Thank you again for your time. Any time, Katie. It's always a pleasure. The screen changes to show a studio shot of Katie slightly overlapping the constant shot of the Chicago skyline, part of which is now clearly ablaze, flames reaching high over buildings. Appended to the end of the newscast scrolls, post-action information, and figures. Total chaos casualties identified at Chicago, 68,000 plus. Total TDF casualties identified at Chicago, 15,000 plus. Total chaos MIA at Chicago, 5,732. Total TDF MIA at Chicago, 633. Number of buildings wired to explode, 537. Number of homes destroyed in Chicago, 724. Number of apartment buildings destroyed in Chicago, 32. Number of businesses destroyed in Chicago, 135. People left homeless after Chicago, 24,188. Economic impact of Battle of Chicago, totaled in excess of 60 billion U.S. dollars. The Battle of Chicago served to rebalance the military power of chaos and the TDF in North America. After Chicago, chaos never committed another major offensive until Thermopylae, even then one dwarfed by the Battle of Chicago. And now we're going to pass into the Cronkite Collection, which is another set of sources for uh, the Appendix C. Forward Progress, 12 March, 2532. And now I'm joined by a live message from Earth by Professor Alexander Hume, Earth historian at Columbia University. Professor Hume, welcome to the program. The screen splits to show Tariq on one half, Hume on the other. A pleasure to be here, Tariq. Professor Hume, as we approach yet another anniversary of Exile Day, could you help our viewers understand why the War of Noble Cause, the impetus behind Exile Day, is so closely regulated and controlled by the government? Certainly, Tariq. As we all know, the Ministry of Censorship was created for the purpose of finding and collecting artifacts from the 15 years surrounding and including the war. As arguably the bloodiest war in human history, at least in recorded human history, the government's original reason for the Ministry of Censorship was to help sanitize history. The theory at the time, and one that continues to guide the actions of the censors today, is if we can control history, we can prevent its repetition. From the old adage, those who fail to learn history are doomed to repeat it, adds Tariq. But Professor, isn't that a bit like removing an organ because it may eventually lose its function? Wouldn't it be a better approach to treat the problem and try to understand its impact better than to simply remove it altogether? You almost sound like a member of the Atmo Underground, Tariq. <laughs> In the past, history was taught for just the reasons you described. However, too often people learned the information for the moment and then let it slip from their memories afterwards. No comprehension took place. Worst yet, people learned the wrong lessons from history. In your analogy of an organ, keeping the information in circulation is like keeping a chronically infected organ in the body because it still retains some function. 
by removing it and replacing it, despite its continued semi-use, and how the pain of it abates from time to time, we altogether remove the possibility of the problem occurring again or of it getting worse. And this is why the government created the Ministry of Censorship, Tariq asks Hume. It is one possible reason, yes, and one that has remained consistent as an explanation by expert anal analysts since the time of the Ministry's founding. What other reason exists, Professor? Some, such as the members of the TD of the Atmo Underground, pardon me, <laughs> believe that the Ministry was created simply to suppress parts of the war, those involving chaos, Hume replies. Where does that theory find ground, Professor? Tariq asks. Simply put, it is part of a larger theory wherein agents of chaos, yet active today, gained and maintained a secret hold on the Houses of Commons and Senate. The Underground maintains that there is a secret plot by such people enacted long ago by chaos himself, Hume replies with a sarcastic chuckle. I take it that you are not an adherent to such a theory, Professor. Tariq asks. Well, certainly not, dear boy. The Walker Report confirmed years ago that Chaos's movement died out soon after the war, and while imitators may pop up on occasion, there can be no doubt. No forces of Chaos or the TDF yet exist today. So you're not a hero, Professor, Tariq says with a grin. Certainly not. Those are no more than crackpot historians resurrecting myths and falsities with which to create controversy and try to make a name for themselves. Professor Hume, thank you for your time. A pleasure, Tariq. The shot switches back to one of just Tariq. Up next, my interview with, and this is her real name, Witch. Not only is she a quickly rising star in the music world, but she claims to have proof that ghost exists. <laughs> we'll have that next. Terran Government Resolution 513. A bill regarding artifacts of the insurrection. 8 August 2056. On this, the sixth anniversary of the Martian exile of the Terran Defense Force, also known as the TDF, maximally made up of and commanded by the so-called elites, members of ATMO organization, we, the duly elected representatives of Earth, hereby enact this bill into law to take effect immediately upon signing by the Prime Minister. First, that this bill, that by this bill a new department will be created in the Terran government. Such a department will be called the Department of Censorship, and will be responsible for the execution of the duties and responsibilities that follow. The Department of Censorship will be given an operating budget that, upon proper review, can be adjusted upwards from year to year. So long as the Department of Censorship is renewed in existence, its funding will never be reduced. The Department, in addition to the standard hierarchy of such a governmental department, shall consist of agents, censors, responsible for the tracking and collecting of the below-described items, as well as the incarceration and investigation of such persons found to be in possession of below-described materials. The censors exist as an arm of law enforcement whose authority stands apart from, and cannot be interfered with by, other Terran constabulary forces. Second, that all items, here termed artifacts to encompass print, recording, and any form of stored item, dealing with the War of Insurrection are hereby and henceforth subject to review and seizure by the Ministry of Censorship. 
Any materials found seditious or in contraposition to the overall good or health of the Terran government and her continued stability are declared illegal. Such artifacts fall under the jurisdiction of the Ministry of Censorship, who is solely legally responsible for the disposition. The agents of the Department of Censorship toward this end are given full constabulary and judicial authority to carry out the above duties of the Department of Censorship, wherever the Terran government holds sway. Third, the first official act of each new session of the Commons and Senate on 7 August annually will be to, upon recommendation of senior members of each House, vote on the continuation of the Department of Censorship. Upon continuation, the Department will provide within one day a synopsis of the previous reporting period's activity to include averaged level of collection for the previous reporting period, total artifacts collected over the period, as well as total artifacts recovered since the signing date of this bill. Such a synopsis will be publicly published and will include as its header a reminder whence the authority of the Department and its censor agents originate. Additionally, any further addendums to the report, as the Ministry deems necessary, will be added to the yearly publication. Lastly, any changes in authority to the Department of Censorship, the Ministry of Censorship, must be so made by unanimous consent of both Houses. Outside of such changes, the Department of Censorship has operational freedom to enact such procedures it may deem necessary for the swift, efficient, and effective execution of its duties related to the search for and seizure of artifacts and persons in possession of such artifacts of or dealing with the War of Insurrection or the general time period 8 August 2040 to 7 August 2055 inclusive. Notice and Report from the Ministry of Censorship, Annual Publication, 8 August 2527. First, let this publication serve as renewed notice that any person found to be deliberately maintaining any size collection of artifacts from, about, or dealing with the general 15-year period of time ended 7 August 2055 from 8 August 2040 inclusive is in violation of the Government Resolution 513 signed into law on 8 August 2056. Any such artifact, when found, will be confiscated and dealt with. Any such person found to be in possession of such a collection will be taken into custody and dealt with. This serves as the annual notice of the continuation of Government Resolution 513 as required in the resolution. Second. Progress in obtaining and confiscating such artifacts as described above and outlawed by Government Resolution 513 remains steady. We remind all citizens that artifacts dropped at government buildings such as passport government shipping offices, police stations, legislative or state buildings are encouraged. Consideration will be given for such actions. Third, the continued discovery and amount of discovered artifacts within the last Earth Standard annual reporting period remains steady. This suggests that even after 471 years, a large number of illegal collections of artifacts yet exist. In some total, including items taken in raids at artifact holding centers, the Department of Censorship has collected over 5 billion unique artifacts total, well in excess of 1,763,000 just in the latter half of this past reporting period alone. Fourth. In regards to the continued raids on holding centers, the Department again requests a funding increase no less than 10% of its current budget for the improvement of security around the centers, as well as the increase in sensor personnel for the investigation and capture of those committing these raids.
This constitutes the summary of activities of the Ministry of Censorship for the last reporting period, 8 August 2526 to 7 August 2527, inclusive. Disposition of NAR Defense Press Release 17 August 2042 NAR Defense today wishes to announce its merger with Stas Industries. After the exile of TDF, our last major contractor, NAR Defense has done its best to diversify its holdings and products. However, having built its base on Defense Works, NAR Defense has simply been unable to adjust properly to market pressures. In view of this, we recently began talks with Stas Industries, formerly Stas Defense and Aeronautics. Stas, having been able to properly adjust to the current market on Earth, graciously extended an offer of friendship and partnership by which NAR can again become competitive. Emerging with Stas, NAR will gain a 50% share of Stas Industries, and Stas Industries will gain a 50% share of NAR Defense. Also, as part of the merger, both companies will undergo a rebranding and reorganization as S&N Industries. What few contracts NAR maintains will be honored by S&N Industries. We thank our many customers who have, over the many years, contributed to the success of NAR Defense and look forward to continuing working with you as S&N Industries. And this will be the last source for this podcast. The Walker Report. A synopsis. 7 August 2350. After careful consideration and exhaustive research, this commission, headed by the Honorable Earl Walker, submits for immediate release the following synopsis of its report. After over a year of careful study... We of the Prime Minister's Commission on the Truth of the TDF Exile have come to the following conclusions. First, in regards to the continued existence of any TDF-related forces, we unanimously find in the negative. No evidence could be found to suggest that now, on the 300th anniversary of the TDF's Martian Exile, there are or were any active TDF remnant cells as had been suggested by some historians. Second, in regards to the continued existence of any chaos-related groups, we found, in a 5-4 majority, that only minority groups yet exist. Unanimously, we agree, however, that such are merely localized chapters of fanatics who follow the ghost of chaos rather than the original movement. None of our commission takes seriously any suggestion that any group claiming to follow the ideals of chaos is either a true follower of the long-dead chaos movement, nor represent any real or viable threat to the government. Third, in regards to the TDF exile, this commission finds unanimously that the TDF deserved its sentence. In its actions supposedly taken on behalf of the citizenry of Earth, the TDF did bring about some of the worst death and destruction this system has ever seen. In its drive to rein in the chaos movement, the TDF inspired the wholesale extermination of over 57 million people worldwide. No movement in all of Terran history, from those led by Nero, Philip of Spain, kings or queens of Great Britain, presidents of the old United States of America, 
Adolf Hitler or Joseph Stalin can claim such a headcount as was inspired by the TDF. Additionally, as was done with nuclear weapons after the exile, weapons with such destructive potential cannot be reliably controlled, must be made impotent to do so. As all nuclear arms on Earth were converted to power plants or launched sunward, so it was fitting for them to follow the example of the TDF who went starward. Again, so there is not ambiguity on our finding, the Commission finds that a TDF exile was both warranted and justified as a means of punishment for the actions it inspired. Fourth, in regards to the claim that any company or corporation was complicit with the TDF during its final years, this Commission unanimously finds in the negative. While many companies were paid by the TDF for the manufacture and delivery of munitions and armaments, chief among those, the long-defunct NAR Defense Works, none were found to have been knowledgeable of or complicit with any TDF-led actions during the War of Noble Cause. Fifth and finally, in regards to claims by Martian colonists that any of the original TDF personnel survived to become part of the original Martian settlement, the Commission unanimously finds in the negative. All documentation extant on the original Martian settlement bears out that they were a duly certified preliminary expedition as sanctioned by the old United States of America sub-government, and while substantiating records were inadvertently purged on Earth, corroborating copies were found on Mars, copies whose authenticity has been verified by this commission. Summarily, this commission wishes to express its deep gratitude to all of its members and sub-members whose time was essential to the compilation of this report. All inquiries or requests for digital copies of this summary or the full report should be directed to the Office of Justice Earl Walker, Versailles, Earth. And that will do it for this week. We have one more section of... About 27 pages to go. Uh, the insurrection, some good points, which is an article, and then a number of emails from Tommy Brewer home to his family. And those should go pretty quick because they're not full page. So we should get through that next time. And that will be the last new podcast for Mystery and Deceit from Earth to Mars for this book. Uh, I am going to finish re-recording some of the initial episodes, and then, hopefully, I will have new episodes from the second novel, from the sequel to this one, coming out soon. If you enjoyed this podcast, what you can do is go to iTunes, go to your favorite podcast application, search for Chris Reed's book, or simply me, Chris Pullman, and you can subscribe to this podcast so that you get all the new episodes as they come out downloaded automatically for you. Otherwise, you can head over to narclaninc.com slash chrisreadsbook. There we have, I have, I'm the webmaster, <laughs> there I have all the raw mp3 files so that if you don't do the whole podcast thing, you can download those files directly to any mp3 player you have and take them with you. Otherwise, if you just want to keep current on the episodes and then download them as they come out, head over 
to narclaninc.com. I have a link out there to my author Facebook page, to my author Twitter account. And every time I make a new episode, I post it out there on social media. So if you like me on Facebook, follow me on Twitter, you'll be able to see when a new episode comes out. The best thing you could do, if you enjoy this podcast, the best thing you could do to help support it is to share this podcast, share this episode with a friend, with a family member, with someone you think would enjoy listening to it. Tell them why you like it or why you think it's just worth a shot. If you have any suggestions, any comments, please feel free to message me on Facebook at my author page or email me directly at chrisreadsbook at narclaninc.com. With that, I hope you all have a great week and thank you for coming back week after week listening to this podcast. I hope you all enjoyed my daughter (laughs) making her presence known in the background. It is getting late and she is tired. With that, I bid you a good week. We will see you next time.